Could you put one of those slides back up there? Is it you back there, Neil? No, it's Robert. The one that says shout it. Go back. Yeah, right there. I'm very interested in songs, in songs that we sing. And you know what we're doing in this song right here? We are actually singing it to each other. If you think about that, you're not just isolated singing this song. It would almost be good if this half of the room would look at this half of the room and this half of the room would look at this half of the room and we would say, shout it! (laughs) Go scream it! You guys follow me on this? We are trying to sing to ourselves when we sing this song. Tell it to the masses that He is God. Thank you very much. I just wanted us to see that for just a moment. All right, we're still in Luke, so let's open up our Bibles to Luke. I hope you're looking forward to that day when we will be shouting it and singing hallelujah right to the Lamb face to face. That's going to be an exciting day for us. I look forward to it. I want to let you know that we have these little cards right here. See this little, like a business card. You can pick these up at the information table. And what's handy about them, it has all the information about the church here. And you can hand these out to people you like. It gives the time, gives the website where they can look up and learn more about the church. And so if you're interested in just handing these out to people, we've got them back there at the information table. In a book I read a few years ago, I can't remember the name of it. I think it was um, Reaching the Unchurched or something like that by Thomas Rayner. The number one reason people don't go to church It's not because all Christians are hypocrites. That's the answer we might give. It's because no one's invited them. It's very interesting to think about that. Um, You know, we're singing a song about shouting hallelujah, and we may not even be willing to ask our neighbor if they would like to join us at church. Taking little baby steps like that can be so important for us in proclaiming the name of Jesus we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 today and finishing up this particular passage or this particular chapter. I want to let you also know as the search committee is continuing to process through all these resumes, and it really is a good thing that you get so many of them, it's also an overwhelming task. And so if you could be praying for people who were on that committee, it'd be great. Um, Robert had talked to me a few about just before the turn of the new year just looking at the, where the search committee was and what things are going to look at. And we were looking at the fact that, you know, I was going to be ending my time on March 15th. And so we began dialogue then about whether or not I could continue on. And so as of this point, I've committed to go on till May 15th. And that just gives us a little bit more time to be able to process applications. And it would be so wonderful to be able to make the handoff, you know, to a, to a pastor. But Uh, Joni and I were able to talk about that and make that decision, so we're looking forward to continuing to be with you a little bit longer. We have a passage today that is an intense passage. We're going to see the word hate here. Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother, and it's like, whoa, what do we do with this particular passage? When I was in junior and senior high school, I had some very interesting practices in my life. When I would walk through the halls of my junior high, I carried gospel tracts right here in my front pocket. And I would just walk down the hallway, and I would just hand them out to people. Romans Roadmap to Heaven. 
And I didn't say anything to anybody, didn't ask any questions, didn't make eye contact. I just handed out these tracks. And we also had a bus that picked up kids and brought them to our church. And I went on bus visitation. Now, here's what you need to know about bus visitation. It doesn't matter if you have one person, two people, ten people. You never take a car. You always go on bus visitation in the bus. And so me and the guy that was the youth pastor, we both would get on this big bus and we would go through these neighborhoods and we'd simply invite people to church and tell them about Jesus. And you could be in someone's house and within three minutes you could have them on their knees and praying to receive Jesus. Then you went on your way to the next house because that's what it was all about. Say a prayer onto the next house. And there's, there's, a, there's an ineffectiveness to that. I went on some websites this past week. Consider the ABCs of salvation on one website. We, many of us may know the ABCs. These are very helpful resources, but I want to make a point about them. Admit to God that you're a sinner, Romans 3.23, and it gives the verse. Believe that Jesus died for your sins, John 3.16, it gives the verse. Confess your sins, 1 John 1, 1.9, you know, it gives the verse. And then it immediately calls the person to pray. That's how simple it is to come to Jesus. ABC, get on your knees and pray. The Romans Roadmap to Heaven, when I got to college, I had 2,000 of these printed up. Folded them all in my room, and I just continued to give these things out. Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23. Back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to Romans 10, 9 through 13 on this particular website. I remember Romans 3.10 being in there somewhere. But on this particular website, four passages, and then it says, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, here's the prayer that you can pray. I want to get people to that prayer. I have concerns about approaches like this because I think that it makes following Christ too simplistic. And Jesus is really bringing us face to face to this in the book of Luke. But I've also been humbled because God uses things like this. I have a friend who back in the early 70s, Southern California, God was doing an amazing work, especially amongst hippies. And this is when Calvary chapels were born. People were getting saved all the time. He was down at the pier. Some guy was standing on top of the railing, just handing out gospel tracts. And he grabbed one, wadded it up, put it in his pocket. He and his friends went hiking. And they were up there smoking some weed up on this little path. He reaches into his pocket, finds that track, pulls it out, reads it, and gives his life to the Lord. And he has faithfully walked with the Lord for 50 years. Okay. That was effective. My own daughter, Amanda, when she was young, we had been slowly presenting the gospel. Our biggest, my biggest fear, I can't speak for Johnny, my biggest fear is she would go to church and someone would say, raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. And then it would be all, I wanted to guide my daughter toward what it meant to know Christ. I made the mistake of going to a Salty the Hymnal concert. And Salty the Hymnal, many of you might know who Salty is. Salty, this is the way I remember it. It's probably not accurate. But this is the way I remember it. Salty said something like, hell's awful. Bad people go to hell. How many of you don't want to go to hell? Raise your hand and receive Jesus. I know it wasn't like that. But that's the way I remembered the moment. And I was seething inside when my daughter said, Daddy, I want to go down to Salty. And so I'm just fuming down there. And I'm like, this is wrong. 
So for the next weeks that follow, I've got my daughter out. We've got Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and we're working our way through it. I got the, the overhead projector up, and I'm showing her slides, and I'm guiding her through Genesis to Revelation, explaining the big picture of who God is. She's taking quizzes and exams. I'm going to make sure she knows who Jesus is. Now, it wasn't that bad, but that's probably the way she remembers it. And I finally come to the moment where I believe my daughter understands what it means to follow Jesus. And I said, Amanda, would you like to give your life to follow Jesus? And so we're laying in her bed in the darkness and talking. And she says, Daddy, that's what I wanted to do at the Salty concert. <laughs> and so I was humbled again by that. And so there, there really is something that God does through our meager efforts to present the gospel. There, there is something good about giving something to someone that's very simple about what it means to come Jesus. The ABCs. God can use that. He can draw people to himself. In the Middle East right now, God is calling people to himself through dreams. They're meeting Jesus in dreams and then God's bringing them people and they're giving their lives to Christ. God can use dreams. God can use the ABCs of salvation. God can use the Romans roadmap. But there's a very sobering message we have from Jesus today in this passage. There's also a deeper sense of what it means to follow Jesus. When Jesus gave himself to people and invited them to be followers of him, he wanted them to understand that this is a big decision in your life. And I think it's important for all of us to grasp this. Let's look at what these, these verses say. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, now he's going to give an illustration, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first? And deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who, has, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a de delegation and asks for terms of peace. Who wouldn't do that? So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus saying? He's saying you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost. And then he goes on. He makes this final word. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's pray and ask God to, to let us hear. Lord, we come before these very sobering words. And as we are gathered here together today, it's because 
You're either drawing us to yourself or you've drawn us to yourself. We've gathered here because we need encouragement. We need to be strengthened. We need some hope. Lord, we're here for a lot of different reasons. We're here to worship you. We're here to learn from you. Lord, so many years ago, you, you cried out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would help all of us to look honestly at our lives once again to see what our priorities are and that you would move in our midst in this time that we have together. So we give this time to you and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a few points that I'd like to make in this passage as we work our way through it. There's a context here in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Remember last week when we were going through this passage, and even in the passages that preceded, but especially last week, Jesus is at a dinner with religious leaders. And so he's gathered with them, and in this moment, he has a word to say to the host. He has a word to say to some of the guests. He also has a word to say to about this great feast that's coming one day and about those who are invited. But now the scene is going to change a little bit Jesus is on the move, and a great crowd is forming around him. And so what Jesus says here is not for those who have come to faith in Christ and now are ready to take the second step. Okay, I want you to up your game a little bit. I know you're following Jesus, but let's move it a little bit further. He needs to be your first priority. This is for all to hear. This is what Jesus is saying to the masses. If you want to follow me, I have something that I want to say to you. And in verses 26 to 35... I want to just isolate what I call three marks of discipleship. Three marks of discipleship. And the first one is found in verse 26. um, A disciple prioritizes everything above Jesus. This has been the theme that we've been going through in the last few weeks. I've been able to catch up on, on listening to the sermons while I was gone. And just watching each of the sermons, just laying this out there that Jesus is to be the priority. A disciple prioritizes everything above Jesus. It's the language that Jesus uses here that can be so startling. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. A disciple prioritizes everything above Jesus. And this word hate here is not literal. It's not like when I was 16 years old back in 1979 and got into a fight with my dad. Oh, I hate my parents. And I'd get into my 1972 Chevelle Laguna Type S3. Man, it was a sweet little car. And I'd Push in my eight-track tape. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life and leave me alone as I drove off from my parents. We're not talking about that kind of thing. That's a messed up 16-year-old in rebellion who needs Jesus. Jesus here is talking in a rhetorical way, meaning that if you don't love less, We could even go over, you might want to just make a note of Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, where Jesus is making the same point. And those are the words that he used. If anyone loves these, father, mother, um, spouse, children, more than me. That's what Jesus means by hate. If there's a priority above Jesus for any relationship that you have, 
You cannot be my disciple. I've got to be number one. You can't love anyone more than me. It's a strong image. But maybe you've had moments in your life when you've experienced that kind of love for Jesus a little bit. I remember very distinctly a time in my life where I was with another family member and we were driving down the road and my family member was in a point of rebellion and just going off on Jesus. And I remember thinking inside of me, how dare you talk about my Lord and Savior like that? And I remember just moving away from that moment going, Whoa, that's what it means to hold Jesus as a priority, to be able to look at this other person I love and say, how dare you? So that's the, I, I didn't say it out loud. I thought, how dare you? Maybe I should have said it out loud. I don't know. I'm not going to go back to that moment and try to revisit it. But I felt that strong allegiance for Jesus in that moment. Jesus is to be the first priority over all. I mean, think about those who are dearest to you. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is probably looking back to some of these excuses that have been given at the banquet. Remember, we were looking last week in verses 15 and following where, oh, the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks about that banquet. And we have all these excuses. They all begin to make excuses. First one says, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, Jesus says, no, these other priorities cannot be there anything above Jesus. Jesus has got to be the first priority. If Jesus invites you to the feast, be there. Make that your priority, not these other things in your life. And we've seen this throughout Luke. I mean, we could just march through all these passages. In Luke 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus is to be that priority. In chapter 9, verses 59 to 62, Jesus is to be that priority. In chapter 12, verses 4 to 5, Jesus is to be that priority. Chapter 12, verses 49 to 53, again, Jesus. Chapter 16, verse 13, you can't serve two masters, God and money. You can't have it both ways. Jesus is to be that priority. Now, today in our world, we live in a lot of fragmentation in families. There's a lot of different abuses that are there. And so we have different opinions about family members being those closest to us. But back in this day, it was a big deal to become a follower of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, when the book of Hebrews is written, it is written to those who have made a decision to follow Jesus and they are walking away from Jesus because they've lost their family. Their love for their family is more. So they gladly leave Jesus behind to restore these family relationships that they have. And Jesus goes on and makes it even more clear here in verse 26. He adds not only all these relationships dear to us, but even his own life. That's how clear Jesus wants to be, even his own life. I mean, we naturally have a love for ourselves. Love your neighbor as who? yourself. Husbands, love your wives as you love what? Your own bodies. We take care of ourselves. We pamper ourselves. When we're hungry, we eat. We protect ourselves. If someone's abusing us, we move away. We're going to protect ourselves in those moments. And Jesus says, even all of that, I must be above the love that you have for yourself. I mean, it's a powerful point that Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, nothing can be above me. Nothing at all. 
And so we've seen this throughout, even in back in Luke 9, in verse 23 and following, where it says, you know, you can't, if you, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And so all these proper priorities that are there are so important. Jesus wants to make that clear. And then, after he says all that, he says emphatically, he cannot be my disciple. There cannot be any other love above Jesus. In the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. By the way, it's an incredible book if you've never read this book. Um, this guy was the commencement speaker at Biola, I think, this past December. And I was on research late, so I didn't go to graduation. Sorry if you graduated at the time. I wasn't there. But he was the commencement speaker. And this is an amazing book. Because he came to Jesus, he did lose his family. And there's been off and on relationship with them. But listen to the dedication of the book. Ami and Abba, mom and dad. Your undying love for me, even when you feel I have sinned against you, is second only to God's love for his children. I pray you will one day realize his love is truly unconditional, that he has offered forgiveness to us all. On that day, I pray that you would accept his redemption. Now listen to this. So we might be a family once again. I love you both with all my heart. In the, in the epilogue, he, he tries to fill in, the, fill in the gaps with some of the relationships with his family. I just want to read this for you. I think it's so important. Regarding my family, so he's just given an epilogue to the book. Regarding my family, after recovering from the initial shock, my parents made two things very clear to me about their stance toward me. He's got a good mom and dad. They felt utterly betrayed, yet they loved me regardless. Emotions raged Harsh words were spoken, arguments flared, but they did not ostracize me. On the one hand, this was a blessing because I remained a part of my family. On the other hand, it was extremely painful because I had to weather emotional storms regularly. Ami cried every time I saw her for almost the next two years, often while painfully indicting me for destroying our family's joy. And he talks about some verses that were a huge comfort to him. And he goes on and says, I met my bride-to-be in 2007, proposed to her a year later, and married her less than four months afterwards. Aside from five dear cousins and an uncle, no one from my family came to my wedding. The entire ordeal was agonizing for me. And just thinking about it still elicits pain. In 2009, when I graduated from medical school, I decided to enter full-time ministry instead of practicing medicine. When my parents heard of this decision, they cut off all communication with me. About a year later, we started speaking again, and it has been tumultuous ever since. You see, what I love about that is he is giving us an excellent illustration of what it means to love family less than your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can he give up Jesus? That's what he's saying. How can I give him up? And so, Jesus is turning to the masses and he's saying, you cannot have anything above me. Now, Jesus goes on and we see in verse 27 a second mark of true discipleship. And I want to simply call this a disciple embraces potential suffering. Not all of us will go through suffering. We may for various degrees. 
but a disciple embraces potential suffering. In verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross, we've seen this kind of language before, and come after me, again, he states it emphatically, cannot be my disciple. One, as they follow Jesus, whatever comes his or her way must be willing to embrace that because the highest love is Jesus, not the dearness of life and not comfortability, but Jesus. And whatever that means, they'll gladly take it. And again, this is just similar to what we saw in in Luke chapter 9. Come after me, take up your cross, follow me daily. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? To follow Jesus means the willingness to suffer to those times when we would be rejected. We've got passages like 1 John 3, 13 and 14, where John says, Hey, don't be surprised when you come up against this hatred, echoing Jesus' words in John 15, 18 and 19. Hey, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. And I really think there is a connection to the degree that we are following Jesus with our whole heart and loving him fully. And he is the priority in our life. There's going to be antagonism from the world. There's going to be different levels of hatred. And it, it almost forces us to ask the question, if we're not experiencing any of that, why not? Maybe we've become so much like the course of this world that we don't experience the opposition that Jesus himself did. But to follow Jesus means there's going to be a willingness for that. I mean, we were singing earlier about shouting, hallelujah. Do people know that we're followers of Jesus or do they just know we go to church? Do they know that Jesus is the priority in our life or simply that we go to the church down the road and listen to sermons and sing songs? Do they see that kind of evidence in our life? Raymond Lull is one of my favorite missionaries. He desired, my family hears these kind of words from me periodically, he desired to be a martyr to the Muslims. I've told my family I can't think of a better way to die than go to northern Iran, be speaking in an underground Bible study, and and be killed for, for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They think I'm weird. Raymond Lowell had similar desires. That's why I love him. And he wrote in his book, Contemplation of God, O Lord, Thy servant subject has very great fear of dying a natural death. For he would prefer his death to be the noblest. That is namely death for thy love. He says, Jesus, I will gladly bear suffering for you. I want to pull this up on my phone because I I read this um, earlier this week and I just kept it on the website right here. This is what it says about Raymond Lowell's end of his life in 1315 when he was 80 years old. Let's go, Bob. Don't know how old you are, but let's go. Here's, here's, your, here's your next assignment. In, in 1315 when he was 80 years old, Lowell made his third and final missionary trip again to Bugia. This time he labored secretly for a year to encourage and train his small circle of converts, just building in their lives. At last, when he could restrain himself no longer. I love that. He stood up in the marketplace and preached publicly God's love in Jesus Christ and God's wrath against the errors of Islam. His audience had heard this preacher once too often. They seized him and dragged him outside the walls of the city 
where they stoned him. And the stories vary about what happened next. Some say he died right there on the shores of North Africa. Others say his comrades picked him up, put him on the boat. And as he was going back to his um, homeland, he died just as he was just about there. But regardless, he died for his faith. I mean, I love that where it says he couldn't take it anymore. And so he stood up and just started proclaiming Christ. We might think, that's stupid. Why didn't he just stay silent, continue to build into the believers? Because he thought of no better way to die than proclaiming the good news of Jesus. A disciple embraces potential suffering. And so we ask ourselves the question, what are we willing to bear? Are we willing to even make it known that we're followers of Jesus? Again, or do people just know of us as people that go to church? What effect does Jesus have on our everyday life? What would it look like if we all approached our day, our week, our month, the next year, with the priority of Jesus? Not just assuming, well, we're good church people. Jesus is our priority, of course. But if we drill it down and ask ourselves, when I look at my checkbook, when I look at my, my calendar for the week, is Jesus really that priority? When I break down my conversations that I have with people, when I think about how many times I've shared Christ with someone else, prayed for someone, is Jesus really that priority. And then Jesus gives two illustrations in light of all this. So he's already said, unless this is true, unless this is true, a person cannot be my disciple. And now he's saying, basically, we've all got to be the kind of people who count the cost. Two illustrations, very simple ones. Building a tower, before you set out to build a tower, You've got to sit down and get your architectural drawings. You've got to raise the money and you've got to figure it out. Do we have enough to do this thing? Or you end up with just a foundation and everybody laughs and mocks. Second one about going out to war. You've only got 10,000. They've got 20,000. You've got to sit down. You've got to count it. Can we beat them or should we send a delegation and make terms of peace? Don't be foolish about this. Don't be the, 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 the ones that people laugh at. How stupid to go out to war when you knew we were going to lose. Jesus gives these two illustrations. And he wants to make it clear. The connection is to follow Jesus. One must commit the entirety. Count the entirety of what it costs. One must understand what it means. For them to be a follower of Jesus. As we think about the first mark. One must understand A disciple prioritizes Jesus above everything. And a disciple embraces the potential of suffering. You've got to count all of that. There is a danger to the one who claims to be a follower of Christ and hasn't counted the cost. Remember the parable of the sower, the soils? And the seed was scattered and it's received, but then the cares of this world choke it out. Or the worries choke it out. Or riches choke it out. That's what Jesus is talking about here too. That seed is to be received down into the soil and nurtured until it begins to grow up into a plant and it bears fruit. That's my disciple. Not these other examples who haven't borne the cost. They haven't recognized the worries of the world, the suffering that potentially could be there. Jesus is saying that needs to be counted. You already know from my earlier illustrations, I'm not a big fan of presenting the gospel and pulling the trigger and trying to get someone to say a prayer real quick. 
at our food bank at our other church, they, they, they make the gospel central to it. And regularly on Sunday mornings, they'll say things like, five people got saved at food bank yesterday. And you want to know what my question is? Where are they? Fifty people got saved in the last year, and I just simply say, where are they? Because becoming a follower of Jesus is not saying a prayer. Becoming a follower of Jesus, if we go back a couple of weeks to um, when Michael was preaching, it's recognizing Jesus' rule and reign in all of our life, and we give it to him. Last week, it's recognizing that he is the priority over all, and we yield everything to him. We yield broken relationships. We, will, we yield financial struggles. We, we yield the hopes and abuses, um, and the, the hurts and abuses of this world. We yield all that to him, believing that he's doing something in this world, and we can be following him. Any persecution that comes our way, loss of relationship that comes our way, we yield it all to him because of who he is. And we need to be careful in how we present the gospel. Again, I've been humbled, okay? I, I want to make sure you understand both of these things. Salty led my daughter to the Lord, okay? And I wasn't happy about it because she didn't know the cost, God does a work way beyond anything I could ever imagine. I know that one day, all those mindless tracks that I handed out in junior high and senior high school, I'm imagining one day, God used that dorky junior high kid, and he brought some people to faith. I believe that. And maybe this passage right here is more important for us who have been followers of Jesus, so that we really do step back and count that cost of what it means to follow him. But Jesus still has one more thing to say in verse 33. And really, how much more can you add to what he's already said? In verse 33, I forgot my glasses this morning. We're, we're in here somewhere. I, I know where the light is. It's right here. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has... And we think of this in terms of possession. So I'm going to make one more point. A disciple must be willing to relinquish all possessions in following Jesus. But I think Jesus is even saying something bigger than that. Everything. Look at every facet of your life. It is to be yielded to the rule and reign of Jesus. Look at every facet of your life. Jesus is to be the priority over all that. If that is not true, that person cannot be my disciple. Everything. And so when we think in terms of material things, I think it's so important for us to think in what we do with our money. How is it that we give? Are we faithful givers? Are we people who, when we receive money, we realize, thanks be to God, He gives. Thank you, Lord. I recognize all of this comes from you. Now I'm going to give you just a little bit Give you a portion back. My first fruits, my very first, not my leftovers, my very first. Worshiping you because you are the giver of all good things. That's really what giving is. It's not getting brownie points with God. It's not doing the Christian checklist. It's worship. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given me. So, you know, when our kids were growing up, we would give them an allowance and we would help them put a little bit aside 
But then the birthday money would come in from grandma. Well, I don't have to give that to God, do I, too? I have to give a little bit of that, too? That's a birthday gift. Well, so you, you, know, you, start, you start trying to pick your battles. We're trying to teach them something, not force something on them. But what are we trying to teach them? Everything that comes to you is from the Lord. And so you give back. It's worship. It's worship to him. And Jesus says, not only do I want you to recognize everything comes from me, and you give back a portion, I want you to realize none of it is to get in front of me. None of it. Any of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That promotion that you want at work or that money that you've been saving up your little nest egg, none of it can come before Jesus. What might he want you to do with all of that, with your present employment, with your little nest egg that's there? What might he want to do with all that? You yield it all to him and you let him lead you. None of it has a priority over him. And so then Jesus lands this plane and he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In other words, to carry the analogy, salt is only salt when it acts like salt. Here's the connection. A disciple is only a disciple when he or she acts like a disciple. That's when it's a disciple. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, all these important relationships, you've got to love them less. I've got to be the priority. If you want to be my disciple, things that could happen to you because you're a faithful follower of me, you've got to embrace that. If you want to be my disciple, everything you have must be relinquished to me. It all belongs to me. If you don't do these things, you can't be my disciple. A disciple is only a disciple when a disciple does what disciples do. We don't want to lose our, here it is, it says, what if it loses its saltiness? We don't want to lose our discipleshipness. We want to keep it there. We want to keep it front and center. And so for some of us today, this passage might be leading us to say, wow, this message is just not stopping. Jesus is coming at it from every single angle he possibly can. And I think that I need to make him more a priority in my life. Or some of you know that you've pushed Jesus aside. Steve was reminding me today of Revelation 3, you've left your first love. And some of you have pushed that love aside. And other things have crowded out Jesus. And other things have become more important for you. And you know you need to repent of that. You need to walk away from those things. Jesus is saying totally. Jesus is saying only. Jesus is saying fully. Jesus is saying no compromise. And here's the difficulty with working through passages like this, even preaching through passages like this. If we're not careful, we assume that we're doing good. And this is a great passage, but hey, I'm okay. And we don't really sit down and look at our lives. Let me give you an exercise to do so that we don't miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Think about it for a minute. If Jesus is number one in your life, Think for a moment about the loves that you have that rival Jesus. Okay, maybe he is number one, 
But just think about the loves that rival him. In other words, they're really close if you're not careful. Just think about that and really do some deep soul searching as to what the order of those loves might be. And maybe for some of you, you might want to just create a top five of your loves. You can let Jesus be one of them. But create a top five. What are my deepest passions and loves in life? And then begin dialogue with people around you and and just ask them, here's my five loves. What do you think is my highest love? What do you think is my greatest priority? Ask people who don't know Jesus. Say, I've got these five loves in my life. Based on what you see in my life, what do you think is number one for me? Wouldn't that be interesting? To ask your neighbor who maybe you don't get along with that well. Or a co-worker. We always button heads together. Or maybe even in your marriage you're, you're struggling in your relationship and you might want to do that together and say, well, what is our top love here? And, and talk to your spouse about what that means. Talk to your parents about it. Parents, talk to your children about it. Go home and say to your children, do you guys see in our home the evidence that we are yielding everything to the rule and reign of Jesus, that, that he is the top priority in our life, that I love him more than I love you. Is there evidence of that in our lives? What do we need to repent of? I don't want us to leave these verses in Luke. And I'm not talking about just today. I'm talking about the weeks that have been coming. I don't want us to lose them. Imagine Redemption Hill Church, La Habra campus. Imagine what God could do through this congregation if Jesus truly is our first love. Imagine what God could do. Imagine what He could do in your marriage. Imagine what He could do in your relationships. Imagine what He could do in your small group. Jesus is truly your first love. That's what Jesus is calling us to today. He's not calling us to beat ourselves up and say, "Ah, I've been a lame disciple. Jesus is saying, I just want us to get all this right. And so he keeps on coming at it. I wonder how much of this is really for the disciples' sake in the long run. Because he's going to be leaving them. They're going to face a lot. And they're going to have to keep him first place. Let me pray. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And What are your top five loves? Honestly, is one of those loves rivaling Jesus? What would your neighbor say, the one you don't get along with, about what your loves are? What would your spouse say? What would your children say? What would your closest friends say? What would your parents say? Lord, we love you, and we are so grateful for your mercy. Lord, I thank you there's not a person in this room that is out of your reach for your love and mercy to be poured out. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have just refreshed my own soul in studying this passage and the way you've granted such forgiveness to me and help open my eyes to things that I need to see in my own life, my own heart. 
And Lord, I pray that you would move in our midst. God, would you make this a congregation where Jesus is truly our first love. Jesus, please rule and reign in our midst.